Today on the podcast, we're having Dr. Joe Dilly, and I'm really excited to share this with you guys because this is a great episode that we all can learn from. He wrote the book, The Game is Playing Your Kid, and the things that he has to say are really going to change how you view electronics in your home. In this episode, he talks about natural consequences, how issues with electronics are actually not different from other issues that emerge for parents. It's just situational of our current time. And a lot of what he shares in terms of language and the way he defines certain things. And then he will also get into what he calls the triangle defense, which is basically a framework for how responding to your child can work. We are excited for you guys to hear because You'll hear pauses in this episode as he explains a concept and Steph and I are just sitting there taking a beat and processing and taking it in. So we are excited to bring you this next episode in our book series. I think it's our author series, right, Steph? Yeah. And if you haven't listened to episode 63, which is with Dr. Ellen Bratton, Bratton, we'll link that in the show notes as well. And she was the author of Bright Kids Who Can't Keep Up, which was another fabulous interview that we aired for you a couple weeks ago. So don't forget to listen to the end of this episode to hear our key takeaways from our conversation with Dr. Joe Dilly. Get ready to enjoy and let's dig in. You want to learn faster, but sometimes working harder is just not the answer. You have to learn smarter. The Educational Therapy Podcast. Hi, Smarties. Welcome to episode 65 of Learn Smarter, the Educational Therapy Podcast. I'm Rachel Cap, And I'm Stephanie Pitts. Today, we're thrilled to welcome Dr. Joe Dilly to the podcast. Welcome, Dr. Joe. Thank you. Can I call you Dr. Joe? Of course. You can even just call me Joe. <laughs> okay, there we go. And I don't know why I said Dr. Joe initially. It was just my instinct, but I like Joe. And you are the author of the book, The Game is Playing Your Kid, How to Unplug and Reconnect in the Digital Age. Absolutely. And Steph read your book in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. That's a good place to unplug. I did. I read the book in Hawaii. I was really excited about it. And it was such an easy read. And it sparked a bunch of conversations by the pool from other parents who saw the title. And I decided right then and there that I was going to reach out to you. And then I saw we had some mutual contacts on LinkedIn. And I was like, okay, so hopefully he'll see that like, I'm not just some random person that's trying to stalk him and um, asked you to come on the podcast. And you said, yes. So here we are. And I'm so grateful to have you. Happy to be here. Thank you. So Joe, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and then how this book came to be? Sure. So I'm a clinical psychologist in private practice. My wife, Dr. Carrie Dilly, and I opened our practice Synergy. We chose that name because it really highlights the ways that ideally the person is integrating all parts of him or herself for optimal you know, functioning and enjoyment, life satisfaction, but also how the client and clinician are part of a process that's greater than each of themselves. They're making gains that could not be made in isolation. We opened Synergy Psychological about 10 years ago. And shortly after opening, I'd say within the first couple of years, I noticed that session after session, 
client after client. And I do work with a lot of families. So when I say client, I mean, you know, the entire system was coming in talking about the same challenges and they all pertained to screen time management, use of gaming and different devices. And I thought, well, I know what to do. I know what to do this hour because it's what I helped do last hour. And it happens to be the same approach that we used, you know, years and years ago when the main problem du jour was, you know, curfew violation or too much cable TV? <laughs> or what, what about the content on MTV? Like when I was growing up, there was questionable content. <laughs> and so um, I thought, well, I know what to do. And so I started documenting what was working. And before long, it was more than just some notes or an article. It was this book. And so that's where I'm coming from. And it's critical. I think that you know you referred to your audience as smarties. And I think that there will be kids and teens who are listening to this as well. And they are smarties in their own right who need to know that this approach is going to be fair and equitable and reasonable. In fact, we had a child in the waiting room not too long ago hold the book up over his head and declare, Mom, you need to read this. It's fair. Yes. And that's what we're going for. It is fair. I'm glad you thought so too. I love that. I definitely thought it was fair because one of the first conversations you have in the book is about parents evaluating their own use of screen times, right? Yes, right. How about it? (laughs) It's so true. It really is. Well, I love how just thought out the book is. It's such an easy read for parents. And I think that even I was saying right before we got on the air that one of my current families is reading the book. And I just told her about the book on Friday. And she said she's already most of the way through and it's Monday morning. Oh, great. So she was intrigued and she thought it was a great, easy read. That was her note to me immediately. So I think that, you know, for some people who are thinking, oh, not another book to read. (laughs) This one is, I mean, this one's quick. Good. And it's got some good nuggets. It's got really good nuggets. It's got pictures and images, which for me, (laughs) I am really drawn to. And the other thing that I told you when we chatted last time, Joe, was I really like the pages, the way the pages feel, but also the spacing out of the text made it easier again to read. Well, thank you. I, I really give so much credit to my editors and publisher. And and in the book, there is a lot of credit given to psychologists who have been doing this kind of work, again, just to combat other problems for decades now. And so we know what we're doing. And so, you know, when we think of it that way, we, and I mean all adults and really kids and teens as well, do not need to be intimidated by the presence of screens or technology, even when they become problematic, because there are ways of managing it, just like we do, you know, other wonderful blessings that also come with liabilities. For example, you know, a really good job. We wouldn't want to say never take a really good job even when it sometimes means you know working long hours or some travel or things like that. And so that's the way we want to view screen time use and technology too. Another example is fire. We're not going to send our kids into the forest and say, hey, here's a book of matches, you know, keep warm out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we're also not going to outlaw fire in all of its variants. We're going to build that cozy fire in the fireplace or roast marshmallows over a campfire. And you'll notice that difference there is containment, safety, adult supervision, some predictability. And that's what we can apply to, you know, screen time management too. Yeah. Everything in moderation. Right. 
including moderation, as they say. <laughs> so it seems from what you've shared so far and from your book that while screen time is a new problem in family structures, the solutions required are not necessarily totally outside the box and a totally different solution. Yeah, Rachel, that's exactly right. Yep. They are tried and true solutions. And in fact, after I presented at a private school here in greater Pasadena, I had a teacher, a tenured teacher approach me and say, you know, that was great. That's exactly what we had to tell parents back in the 80s when cable TV started being allowed in kids' rooms and they were saying, how do we manage it? Hmm. We can't be naive and let technology climb insidiously, kind of sneakily to the top of the hierarchy in our family system and in our home structure. But we don't need to be paranoid either. And, you know, we can use this wonderful gift of technology in ways that benefit us on a moment-to-moment basis and that benefit society so long as we remain the users and we don't become the devices. That's really the fundamental message of what psychologists who research this are trying to communicate and what ideally we're doing in our our private practices as well. I think that's great. Yeah. I mean, I want to say that there's probably a lot of parents listening going, this is just such a huge problem in my family. I don't even know where to start or how to start. Understandable. So let's start the same way we would if we were doing a workshop together. I want parents who are listening to go ahead and visualize their morning routine or their evening routine, but morning's an easy one. You could also pick bedtime if that's preferable in the home and particularly how that routine involves or doesn't involve screen time. And most of you are getting like the Roger Rabbit theme song playing in the background that just denotes (laughs) sheer chaos. (laughs) Quick backpack, lunches, finished Mm -hmm. breakfast, turn that off. Wait, you have earbuds in? Take those out. I'm talking to you. Get in the car. Your carpool is here, etc. And you can feel the frenetic energy of those moments. Then what I want you to do as you imagine that is ask yourself, okay, how intense is that? On a scale of one to 10, how big is our problem when it comes to screens? 10 would be, it's out of control. I need to read the book like that one mom did over the weekend and let's start making some changes. And a one would be, you know, I don't know why you're listening right now. You're probably out on a hike, which is fantastic. So get your number in mind. And then I want you to visualize what small thing would need to change to move your number down just one notch. And so if it's at an eight, problem level, intensity level eight, what would it take to make it seven? What would it take to make it seven? What little thing could change a little bit just to take the edge off. And then that's where you're going to launch to answer the question, Stephanie, of you know, where do we even begin? The idea is, well, let's operationalize some things and make them measurable so that we can then track our progress and know what's working and what's not. I think that's so great and so important because in educational therapy, we always talk about taking aim oh, nice. and starting with one thing. Perfect. You can't do all the things. It just doesn't work. So you've got to start somewhere, take the aim, meet your child where they're at, and start to make changes there. And they might be small, but they grow from there. So I think it's fundamentally the same approach, which is amazing because if you really look at it 
from a perspective of let's just take some baby steps and we don't need to make a change tomorrow to get it back to a one, mm-hmm. that that's not going to be reasonable and you're going to set yourself up for failure. Right. right. Wow. Wonderful. Taking aim. I'm, I'm borrowing it. I'll be using it today. No <laughs> doubt. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> There's a lot of language in your book. You kind of redefine some things. There were some things in there that I wanted to ask you about. Let's start with the one that I think may shift our language on the podcast. We often talk between Steph and I that we like bribery. (laughs) (laughs) When we have particularly an older student who has struggled for a long period of time, we talk about this a lot on the podcast. We come from a fundamental belief that learners want to please kids want to please their parents kids want to please their teachers and they try they do want to do well sure and what ends up happening is once a child who has gotten the message for many many years that it's not working you're not trying hard enough you're not doing well enough or hopefully they don't get this message but they may have heard that they're lazy yeah what ends up happening is that they emotionally disconnect from school. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Steph and I often say to parents who now have children who are no longer intrinsically motivated because of their life experiences is that you have to reward them with outside things to do the things that you want. But we use the terminology bribery (laughs) (laughs) because parents understand it, but you kind of have a different approach on that. You prefer reward, correct? Sure. And a lot of parents listening will understandably say, what's the difference? And Here's the difference. Bribery is when the reward precedes the uh, target behavior. And reward is when the reward follows the target behavior. So you go to work and then you get paid. You're not being bribed for going to work. And sure, ideally, you enjoy what you do also. That's inherently a reward. And some kids are going to challenge this when you introduce it and they'll go, okay, well, if I were a professional athlete, I'd be getting paid and then playing in the game because they get paid up front with some of these contracts and signing bonuses and so forth. That's true, but they have certainly paid their dues first. You don't walk on to an NFL football team and get a big signing bonus. That's not how that works. And so it's just fine to use and in fact is quite effective to use reward because it entails the same setup that we have in the adult world where when we do what we're supposed to do, we enjoy more or greater degrees of freedom to do what we want to do. So I think we were just using the word wrong because we weren't advocating giving rewards prior to behavior. Very true. So, Steph, now we have to be clear about that. Now that we know better, we can do better. It's interesting because I think out in the world, they use it one and the same. Right. And when we've said bribery in the past, parents understand that because their own parents said if you get an A on something, you get, you know, $50 or whatever it is. But it's important to note that there are going to be some kids that need bribes and there are going to be some kids that just need rewards. Interesting. You feel like you can kind of catalyze some movement by going ahead and doling out a little bit of that reward, even in advance of the completion of the target behavior. Right. It's a deposit. Sure. 
for some kids, not all kids. I mean, I think there are some kids that will be fine just with the reward and have enough intrinsic motivation. But there are some kids, particularly in my practice, and I've spoken about this before, I have some kids that are you know, struggle with ODD, you know, which is oppositional defiant disorder or severe ADHD or things like that. And the impulse control is just not there. Sure. And I feel like those kids, parents, if you've tried the reward system and it hasn't worked, then it's okay to use the bribes, in my opinion. The research that's supporting your notion there would be shaping by successive approximation, which is just a fancy way of saying you can reinforce and ideally you initially do on a moment to moment basis. So Mm -hmm. the student just opens the textbook. Hey, here's a gummy bear. Let's get it going. The student flips to the correct page. Cool. Let's turn on some ambient music. The student answers question number one. I think it's time for a break. That's a lot more than you've been doing. That's a 300% increase from what you've been up to in the past couple of days. And so then, of course, parents are going to ask, and again, rightfully so, well, that's all well and good. What do we do then when this behavior persists for a couple of weeks and they're asking for the moon? And the answer is we rely on a process called thinning, where you gradually, kind of like scaffolding, you gradually take down the intensity of the rewards because the intrinsic and inherent enjoyment and reward of doing the activity starts to kick in. So now Junior's gotten his first A and he goes, hey, that feels pretty good. I might do that again. And ideally over time, we build, Stephanie, that you know capacity for deferring immediate gratification so that it can become some long-term goal-directed sustained activity. That's great because it makes so much sense. And that, you know, na- next time maybe it's, oh, you've gotten to page one. Now you get one gummy bear, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that it's important to note, and we did an episode about this because I feel really strongly about how there's going to be hiccups. <laughs> and it's remembering that how you recover, how you get back to where you were, that this isn't going to be a linear process for parents. So true. With grades, with homework, with technology. This isn't going to be tomorrow or next year you're going to be at a one or a two or whatever your desired number is. Mm -hmm. And there aren't going to be times where it might go back to an eight. And I think it's important that we remind everybody, don't give up just because it got a little hard again. Right. Yeah, we're not operating in a vacuum here. Mm -hmm. Our kids' capacities and desires are changing and the games and apps and even the people with whom they're engaged are all changing as well. And so, of course, that number is going to bounce around a little bit, particularly as we hone what's working in each of our homes. So I just went and looked it up. That was episode 49. We'll link it in the show notes, that episode. Because we talk about sometimes it can be five steps forward, but then it feels like it's six steps back, but it's actually not. It's just one, but it feels catastrophic to parents when they have that little backslide. But it seems like all three of us are very aligned in starting small and that success will increase success across the board. So we're going to talk about a lot today, but maybe you start with one thing which is what we always advocate when we do highly ed therapy specific episodes is we as educational therapists have to target one thing at a time Sure. with all our learners. Yeah, makes sense. 
I would love for you to talk a little bit about natural consequences. I think this is something that comes up a lot in parenting books. I think it's something that we talk a lot about in educational therapy. This is very common as grades are coming in. Now we're recording this in June that parents will email and say that they're upset that their child who previously was getting low C's is now getting B's. Mm. And one of my reactions, one of my responses is, no, these are the natural consequences of the changes and efforts that they've made. There's room for growth, but their grade is a natural consequence of their choices throughout the semester. Can you talk a little bit about natural consequences and how you look at it? Sure. Yeah. The way I look at it is simple cause and effect. And so if I walk across the street and get another iced coffee this afternoon, like I just did, the natural consequence is going to be, I'm enjoying my beverage. If I don't, I'm not being punished. I am simply lacking the enjoyment of that iced coffee. And so when parents hear consequences, they might think, oh, that means I have to administer punishments or you know, provide some kind of noxious response to my kids' misbehavior or off-target behavior with regard to school or screens. And really, the idea would be you want to get the relationship to be between the child and what they're going for so that what they want... They either choose to act in ways that they apprehend it, or they choose to act in ways that they do not apprehend it. And that's not punishment, that's response cost. When you want something and you act in a way that it actually costs you the thing that you want. A good example would be, well, yeah, with the iced coffee, if I don't go, yeah, there's a response cost of not going. There are some other benefits of staying in the office and not walking across the street too, because it's like 97 degrees already. (laughs) And so that's what we have to do when it comes to screens and grades as well, is line it up so that, hey, Junior, nice job. When you're doing it that way, look at the latitude that you get to enjoy. Of course, when you're not doing it the right way, your world becomes smaller, not because I yell at you or give you the stink eye. I certainly don't hit you. Instead of those punishments, what we're going to do is shrink it down so that your privilege level matches what you are ready for developmentally, or at least what you're ready for as indicated by your behavior. I love that. You've introduced a new word. This was a new phrase for me response cost. Sure. And I would love you to talk about how that is different from punishment because I think defining it and differentiating it is going to be really helpful construct for parents. Right. Yeah, let's do it. So response cost differs from punishment as follows. So traditional punishment entails administering a noxious stimulus, meaning, okay, mom and dad, I am not turning off this device. Just watch me play. When mom and dad then yell or God forbid, hit, or lecture, or give the evil eye, any of those things that just bring on unpleasant interactions, those are, by definition, punishments. However, when mom and dad say, you know, we talked about this, and every time you don't turn off the screen in defiance, every minute that you spend today costs you two of tomorrow's minutes, That's response cost. And will the kid learn right now today? No. Will they learn tomorrow? Probably. Might this take several trials? Yes, that would be most likely. And so kind of like all of us when we get our first credit card, yeah, you can spend more today if you want. It's going to cost you even more 
tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That's response cost. That's not punishment. The uh, credit card company doesn't mind if you overspend your limit. They're not calling to lecture you about that or yell at you about that. Oh, but they'll see to it that you'll pay. That's a really good analogy. (laughs) It is a really good analogy. It makes so much sense. Well, that's the way the adult world is set up for better and worse. And so that's what we need to help our kids at home be prepared for so that they can enjoy great latitude and wonderful privileges and rewards and they can minimize their response costs or choose the ones that make sense, such as when you go to buy a home, you're going to be in debt and you're going to owe interest. Those are response costs. That's okay. You're also enjoying the kind of superordinate reward of owning your own home. That's wonderful. We wouldn't want to discourage that. Of course, if the response cost is too high, you won't buy the home. If you can't afford it, you don't buy it. And it's not because the bank yelled at you, spanked you, what have you, back to those traditional punishments. One of the first parts in the book is about basically taking stock in your own family. And I think that's really important to know about yourself and the family structure in general. But I also think knowing that you as a parent, you and your partner or whomever is Mm co-parenting need to be on the same page. (laughs) That's so true. Yes. This is a baseline thing for everything that goes on in your home, right? Well, yes, for everything. That's a really good point. It's not limited to just the topic of screen time management. Right. But since that's kind of the topic for today, I mean, the easy example is if you say to turn the device off, And your partner says, it's okay if you keep playing. If your partner says, it's okay if you keep playing, then what's Junior going to do? Keep playing. Of course. Choose the enjoying activity that they like. The pleasure-seeking activity. What if you say, okay, every minute that you don't turn it off now is going to cost you two minutes tomorrow, but it doesn't get communicated or it doesn't get fulfilled tomorrow... And they still get the same amount of time. Yes. Junior is not going to learn by outcomes or natural consequences because there are none. Mm -hmm. And so that would be like the uh, credit card company saying, you will owe this high interest rate. And then lo and behold, there's a glitch in the system and you get charged zero. In fact, you don't even get charged for your initial payment. You just get to keep spending. You get a free month. Get a free month. <laughs> then, yeah, I'm not going to learn to balance my personal budget. Right. So the communication piece is, thank you for bringing that up, Stephanie. It's essential, but it can be simple too. So when you get triangulated and Junior says, oh yeah, dad told me, dad told me I, uh, I earned um, a half hour. First of all, it'll sound a little like the old Kevin Nealon bit on Saturday Night Live where He's trying to make truth out of lies. And then second, you can go, oh, great. Well, I'm just going to text dad real quick because he didn't tell me that yet. And there's your litmus test because junior will either say, great, or no, no, maybe dad said 15 Mm -hmm. minutes. Yeah, well, maybe he (laughs) said zero. So let me just check real quick. You have no idea how often this happens for me in (laughs) session. And it's so easy to discover because you just ask the follow-up questions. Oh, no problem. Let me just text your mom real fast. No, no, I don't mind. It's no big deal. I'm going to text her. (laughs) And and the kid's like stuttering through. This happened recently. And the mom called and was like, "Mm, I don't quite think that's what happened. It was very interesting. Totally. Uh, Yeah, very common. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's critical that we get on the same page with our partners and then that we model or demonstrate for our kids what we're asking them to do. And so if you are not behind a screen, but your partner is, but both of you are speaking with one voice to ask Junior to get off of his screen, one of his appropriate questions is going to be, but dad's not. And so you need to have that communicated and established about what are you modeling and you know what's your answer going to be for that. It's such a fair response. It is. I mean, we cultivate all of this curiosity and appropriate question asking in class. In fact, kids get graded on participation. They're supposed to ask questions. Then when they ask one at home, if the delivery is appropriate, we need to cultivate it at home too. Hmm. What is dad doing? That's a good point. Now, um, another fair exchange is going to be when dad goes, well, I'm working. Junior's going to say, me too. <laughs> In fact, all my homework is online, remember? Oh, right. So we have another challenge, but not one that we cannot surmount. But more importantly, it's not a challenge that makes the adults in the world all just go, oh, well, I guess stay on the device. And also, I don't really care what websites you're on or for how long you're on there. No, it, this still requires natural parental monitoring and supervision. So if Junior is way out of line when it comes to online activity and he goes, well, sorry, mom and dad, your hands are tied. My homework is online. You can go, great. I'll drive you down to the library where you'll be on a public computer and I'll even sit there with you and get some of my work done. Of course, if you can't find what you want online, you'll be... Um, in the library. Out of library. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited that you brought up this point. I know we talked about it before we went on air, but this is one of the biggest obstacles because we do have this conversation quite a bit with parents, particularly about the fact that so much of school is online. Mm. So do you have any other feedback? Or, I mean, I love the library idea, but it's not going to be feasible for the parents who both parents work and the kids responsible sure. for themselves in the afternoon. Right. Yes. So what would you say in that scenario? Yeah, it certainly does depend on what your situation is. That includes, you know, what your child's screen time difficulties are. Is it that they're spending too much time or is the content inappropriate or both? What exactly does have to be completed online? And then what are your available resources? So if you're at work and your partner's at work and the, uh, screen time problem is really, really big, then it might be something pretty drastic where, yeah, Junior's going to have to wait to get that homework done until you're home, or he or she is going to have to get everything that they can done with paper and pencil first, or they can stay at school, or you can dust off the old typewriter from the basement and say, gee, if it has to be typed, here's what we used to use. It's not a judgmental, condescending thing. It's matter of fact, hey, we used to watch cartoons on Saturday mornings, and then we also used to compose on this. It's called a typewriter, and you'll notice it's inherently less distracting than that device. And when kids balk at this, that's understandable. But what you want to emphasize for them is that these practices are only as necessary as their behavior indicates. And so when you show me that, you can get your homework done without traveling to inappropriate sites or spending six hours online, only maybe 30 minutes of which was actual homework, right. then you won't need this kind of structure. 
I want to just add one thought that I had as you were explaining that whole thing, which is prioritization of what is important in our family. And some families that I work with, students going to bed at a certain time is the ultimate. In our family, our kids are in bed by 930 or 10 o'clock. In that case, you would have to provide an opportunity to complete homework within that framework. Right. It's all the other things going on simultaneously. But maybe in your family, the priority is we got to hone in the screen time issue, which means we have to be home, which means they have to wait. Right. They don't even get their computer until we get home. And then they're probably still going to go to bed earlier because you're monitoring them. <laughs> right. right. But it's not going to take them as long. But it's just being respectful of, you know, in our family, these are the rules. These are the values. Sure. And this is what we want to have. Right. Yeah. And you've seen that meme on Facebook, I'm sure, where it's, you know, do this, this and this to earn today's Wi-Fi password. Yeah. And that is absolutely something when I was raising those children, I would have done. Perfect. Because you could just take it all away. Right. Well, when you say go to a coffee shop or check into a hotel or something where there's going to be internet access for public use, but then if you want to get on a more private network, you need information. Well, you're probably... You have to pay for coffee. Yeah. You buy your coffee and you check with the barista. Hey, what's the Wi-Fi password? And then, you know, you're checking into the hotel. You're not just given that password willy-nilly for, you know, loitering outside of it. Right. Um, and so on. And so again, since this is the way that the adult world is structured, we're not doing our kids any favors by structuring it otherwise at home, at least metaphorically. We have an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. I don't need my four-year-old to... I don't need either of them to know any passwords right now. Right. And that's the way we have it set up where, you know, is now a good time to turn on a screen? Well, let's look at your behavior over the past couple of hours and that'll answer it for both of us. It won't be some kind of arbitrary decision from mom and dad. It'll be pretty clear to everybody as soon as the question is even raised. Hmm. Yeah. And it's not like a blanket, okay, you can have screen time from six to seven. Right. Situation. It's very dependent on behavior prior. Yes. And behavior during and behavior immediately after. So if at 6.30 it's dinner time, hey guys, let's pause the show while we have dinner. If there is a kerfuffle, mm -hmm. then I don't think it's a good idea to turn it back on after dinner. But if there's reasonable compliance, oh yeah, cool. Be right there. Mm -hmm. great. They are not being played by the game, so to speak. They are controlling the device. They are not being used by it. And that's what we want to get in place and get internalized so that that first college football Saturday, whoa, everybody's going to the game. And I've got finally the choice that I can go to the game. I've never been able to have any freedoms before, or I can study because I've got a major test on Monday. Any well internalized structure is going to say, okay, I'm going to get my studying done Thursday and Friday because I really want to go to the game Saturday. Then I'll have a little bit of brush up to do Sunday. And that way I can do both. But if you've never had that kind of cause and effect, you're heading straight for that game guaranteed and... Without regard. Without regard. You'll be lucky to crack the book Sunday night. I have a question. What are some things that families can institute with younger children? You talked about how you have younger kids. What are some things that you can institute at that younger age where they don't necessarily have their own device yet? Mm -hmm. And then this could just be highly dependent on who your child is. 
but when do you give them the phone? Yep. Great. Mm -hmm. Great. Two good and important questions. So with regard to how to structure things for younger kids, I'd say it probably begins with, you know, soccer and t-ball and jujitsu and outdoor activities of all kinds and hikes and bike rides and a lot of love and attachment and caring and connection. And then, oh yeah, sometimes we're going to watch a show together. And sometimes you're going to get to play on you know, abcmouse.com or something like that. But the device is not going to be our raison d'etre as a family. And so as you're kind of figuring out what you like, you're going to get a whole smorgasbord of opportunities to determine what that is. And some of those will be screen-based, but a lot of those are going to be, you know, going to the park with mom and dad. Hmm. Ah, where mom and dad might also take a little screen break. So do I check my email at the park? Of course. Always? No. And in fact, one time I left my phone at home on accident and I got there and I thought, but nobody can reach me in case of an... And I thought, but I'm with my youngest child. This is who the emergency would pertain to. And so it's okay. And I had the best time. It was so much better. When do you recommend that parents do give the phone? Because a lot of parents think it's a safety issue, which I understand. You bet. So you mentioned, Rachel, you know, maybe it depends on the kid. It sure does. It depends on the child, the type of phone, because we have smartphones and we have kind of less intelligent phones, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so the parameters can be discussed and determined up front. And what does possess the phone really mean? What does use the phone really mean? And this all needs to be on kind of a day-to-day or even, if possible, shorter initially, kind of a moment-to-moment transactional basis. So, hey, I got my own phone. Well, what does that mean? Because mom and dad have to pay for the plan. They might have bought the hardware, but as soon as it runs out of charge, it's non-functional. Mom and dad pay for the electricity at the house. Hmm. Oh, also for the internet. Okay, let's see. So that means I have a device, yes, but in order to maintain use of the device, I need to keep meeting my... You're leasing it. Perfect. Perfect. How do I make my lease payments? How about when I ask you to come down for dinner, you don't text me no. (laughs) That kind of thing. And so, yeah, in terms of safety and having a phone for emergencies, there are plenty of phones that I'll call... 911 or only parents number or a limited cache of numbers. And that's perfect to get started with. And is age going to factor in? Sure. But it's really developmental age over chronological age. Right. There are plenty of 18-year-olds who should not be using a smartphone because they don't have the wisdom to know how to use it effectively. I'm curious from your perspective, when you go to a restaurant and you see a family with kids and the kids are sitting in front of the iPad at the restaurant. And this is not coming from a place of judgment. It's just something that I've noticed. Yeah. What's your reaction to that? Oh, good. They won't mind when I need to do the same here in a couple of minutes. But here's when I'm going to get the devices out for my kids. It's when they have comported themselves in such a way that indicate that regardless of where we are, or perhaps 
depending on the event, maybe it's not dinner, maybe it's the back of a church for a wedding or something, their behavior is going to indicate to me whether they're ready for the stimulant-based activity of a screen. And I know a lot of us are going, wait, but you're giving it to them to soothe them. Well, it's not really soothing. It's kind of engaging them and keeping them occupied because you're in a setting that requires lower levels of volume and physical activity and things like that. And so here's how I feel about it. If you're going to go in and everybody's going to be on your device, you might as well not be dining together. That's not the idea. But if you want to go in, have some nice conversation, maybe one of the games that you play at dinner is pits and peaks where you all go over the highs and the lows of your day. And then the kids have eaten appropriately or have been patient even though there's a long wait before the food gets delivered. A little screen time is not going to be a big deal. It's all back to balance. Ah, in the same way, kids would earn dessert at that same restaurant. And now the dessert is the screen time. Can you give them a little bit before dinner? Yeah, probably. It kind of depends on if they're already bouncing off the walls. You're not going to feed your kid a Sunday, But if they're calm and the food's taking a long time and all you've got in your bag is a semi-chocolatey granola bar, you're probably going to give them half of it to tide them over. It's all right. right. And so I guess it's case by case and it's highly individualized. Never a blanket statement. You always get, you can always have. I think that's where we get into trouble, that the expectations are set in a way that there's no conversation oh, about it. Yes. We go to the restaurant and... I automatically get the iPad or whatever it is. I think that, you know, the more we can sit there and have conversations about what expectations are, the more we can prepare the kids to meet our expectations. Because sometimes the kids don't know what the expectations are or they keep changing and it's very hard to keep track. I completely agree. I think that brings up an important point that it's okay sometimes if the situation calls for it. And parents will hear this and go, well, okay, what if my kid is not sitting there appropriately? Do I give them the screen to get them to pipe down? No, then we're into bribery, aren't we? Because now we're giving you the reward and expecting a certain behavior to follow. So instead, we need to have it be response cost. Now it's going to be even longer before you get it. And if you're going to overreact to that, I'll take you outside so that you can calm down outside where other diners are not impacted. Have I done this as a father myself? Of course, it works. Then when they're composed, we come back in and we try again. Can you color for a couple of minutes? Great. Nice job. You're back into kind of the The zone. zone. You want to look at this for a couple of minutes? Go for it. As soon as the food comes, we'll need to turn it off. And if we don't turn it off, if there's another struggle, then what are you showing us for next time we're out to eat? we won't be using the phones before dinner, if at all. So make a good choice. I hope you do. By the way, have a good time in college. <laughs> I, I, uh, this reminded me of a story. I was out to dinner with one of my friends who listens to the podcast and her son was going through, a, or we were at breakfast, sorry. And her son was going through a phase where he would just scream inside because mm. he knew he wasn't supposed to and yeah and she would the second it would start okay we're going outside and it happened several times and she had a newborn at the time so eventually rachel's outside with baby with kid yeah and it ended up being almost like we were rewarding his behavior only because fire trucks kept coming by <laughs> and it was like <laughs> and finally 
like I said to her, I'm like, oh, I don't know if it's a good idea to take him outside, but we have to because we can't. He's getting rewarded right. by seeing the fire trucks. Right. And so finally we made a deal that we would walk to the fire station. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I, I love how humor has to come in and kind of save the day because try as we might, life's going to happen. And again, this stuff doesn't take place in a vacuum. We're in the real world. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so when you initially set limits, when you initially administer some response costs or put those into place, you will most likely see a phenomenon called the extinction burst. The extinction burst, meaning that kids are going to escalate their response in a last ditch effort to get you to capitulate. So, you know, the dog barks and gets food. The dog barks and gets food. The dog barks and doesn't get food. What's the dog going to do? Bark louder. If the dog then gets food, it has been inadvertently trained to bark loudly to get the food. So in the same way, if your kid starts to complain and you go, well, this response cost thing is not working. Instead, it's, oh, this response cost thing is working so well, they're having to try harder to get what they thought they were going to have access to. What I need to do now is gently hold the line, remind them why we're not doing that right now so that their behavior can burst or hit the ceiling and gradually return to normal so that next time what I have very intentionally trained and cultivated is a new response that says, I could freak out right now, but it's actually in everybody's best interest, including mine, if I stay calm. That's a way of looking at this where you're basically letting everybody know in advance that this will get worse momentarily before it gets better. Right. When we can prepare, even in educational therapy, our first session with families is we're setting expectations of what educational therapy is. We walk them through the framework that Steph and I have designed. Steph can link it in the show notes right now. I see her looking at the screen doing that. Mm -hmm. And the reason we do that is because we want them to know there will be backslides. It doesn't mean it's not working. It, in fact, means it's working because our kids are learning to recover and what to do in certain situations. Mm -hmm. So we almost need that backsliding as educational therapists to monitor our own progress. But when we let parents know in advance, this will get worse. And when it gets worse, it means it's working. Yeah, wow. I love that. It means it's working. And that's where we have to be particularly attuned as parents. We are not being punitive and judgmental and nasty about it. Rather, we're saying, gee, your behavior hasn't shown me that you're ready for this right now. Do you think that continuing to yell at me or protest or stomp or break stuff is showing me that you're closer to ready for it? Or are you even farther than I thought? So you're orienting them, you know, is this a good idea? I was 11 years old learning how to play golf from my grandmother who was exceptional. She won all kinds of tournaments. And I missed about a four-foot putt. And so I had about a six-inch putt remaining. So after missing the four-footer, instead of tapping in the six-incher, I hit the ball off the green and looked at her like, what are you going to do? <laughs> and instead of getting impacted by my short tantrum, she goes, now, was that second putt really your best effort? Yeah. We'll never forget it. And the metaphor is there for all of us. So, okay. So I asked you to turn off the phone. So you threw it at me. Huh? Do you expect that to get you more screen time? Keeping calm in those moments. Ooh. As you're talking, <laughs> I'm not a parent yet, but I'm, oh, I got to brace myself. It seems hard. 
<laughs> yeah, it's harder than I thought. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about triangle defense and what that means? Sure. Yeah. So it's named in honor of former Lakers and Bulls coach Phil Jackson, who came up with this revolutionary scheme for basketball called the triangle offense. But my opinion is our kids are being plenty offensive already in their quest for more screen time. What we need is some good D. So the triangle defense is and this is well depicted and diagrammed in the book. And there are some online places you can get it as well. And the idea is that there's a hierarchy, there's a pyramid shape where when it comes to administering response cost, we want to spend as much time as we can on the lower levels of that pyramid. We only want to level up in administering response costs as our kids' behavior demonstrates is necessary. So here's what I mean. Lowest level of the triangle defense is let it go. Let it go. <laughs> Good. <laughs> so glad you got that. All right. Yeah. Um, let it go, meaning it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It means that it's a minor enough slight that paying attention to it and responding to it is only going to fuel the fire. And so if when you tell your kids, time to turn off the screen, they go, okay. Leave it alone. My goodness, what a fantastic response. That's like if you're driving in traffic and somebody cuts you off and you go, okay. Even if they roll their eyes. <laughs> Even if they roll their eyes. Okay. I'd say leave it alone. You know, if you're at a one on your scale and you really want something to work on because it needs to be a zero, then yeah, I guess you're going to address eye rolling. But man, if that's all you got going on, great. And so if they go, all right, or really already? The idea is don't engage with that. You don't have to make it a big deal. That's somebody expressing disappointment because they're about to stop doing what they're enjoying doing. I think we all do that. Uh, the movie's over already. Game of Thrones ended like that, mm-hmm. etc. <laughs> then if we need to, then we level up to the second level of the triangle defense, which would be chill time, which is the old timeout. It's two to five minutes Let's regroup, let's breathe, let's turn off anything that's bringing additional stimulation and reinforcement. And parents might do it too. So you ask your kids to turn off the game before dinner and you get a... But it's followed by a throwing of the remote or they begin to scrap with one another. We're going to take a couple of minutes to chill here before we have a nice meal together. Just a couple of minutes, guys. Oh, that sucks. Okay, now it's three minutes. Oh, I hate this. Now it's four minutes. Do you want to keep going? Or can you guys pull it together and come sit down at the table? And you go from about two up to a maximum of five minutes. Then after chill time, you're comported. You go enjoy dinner together. Or your kids are still escalating or you've gotten to that five-minute recommendation and they have trashed the family room or something. All right. What are you guys showing us? It's time for a longer screen break than two to five minutes. And regardless of what happens with dinner, what you just showed us is these screens have to be off the rest of the night. And so I call this level hiking the Oregon Trail. And I learned this from an old supervisor who called it pioneer days. The idea that in the early settlement of the West, There was no technology. There wasn't even electricity. So we're going to go back to basics. It's going to feel a little like camping. And we're just going to have a low stim evening. 
parents then say, well, wait a second, what if the behavior doesn't improve over the course of the evening or they shout back at that limit being imposed? Okay, well, then we've extended our hike on the Oregon Trail until tomorrow morning and if necessary, tomorrow afternoon and so on until a total maximum of about three days off. Hmm. And you can read about the specifics of why three days and then what to do next. And then wouldn't it be great if it all ended there, if that's all we ever had to do? But there is one top level of the triangle defense if you should ever need it. And I call it X-Men because we're going to get super heroic assistance if we ever need to. The top level of the triangle defense is for when kids start to threaten or demonstrate harm to self or other. And so this comes from a story that I wish was fictional, but it's real. And a few years ago, as I was typing up the book, I had some parents say, well, we tried to remove Junior's iPad. And so he grabbed a kitchen knife and threatened to slit his own wrist. Oh, wow. Now, if at that point we go, well, I guess we better let him have the iPad. Well, then we're in real trouble because then every time that he wants an extension, he threatens self-harm. That's what we've inadvertently reinforced. And so although what we're doing right now is not psychotherapy and I'm not giving advice for your situation, the idea in general would be that self-harmful gesture too needs to be met with appropriate limit setting in the form of exactly what you'd do if the self-harmful gesture were in response to anything else, a bad relationship breakup, let's say. Actually, this is sort of a relationship breakup where you Mm -hmm. lose your device and, oh my God, I love that thing. It's lost. There's a really cool documentary called Like, where they interview researchers who have documented some of the same neuropathways being illuminated in our relationship with screens as we have when we are in love with another individual. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic research. Okay. Then, so what would we do? Well, we have to place limits on it. So if my kid is going to harm himself or says he's going to harm himself, I need super heroic assistance. I need an intervention. I need to call 911 or the psychiatric emergency team or pet team or take Junior to the emergency room. And then these folks can help contain that impulse for self-destruction or harm to others and make sure that we get them rebalanced. Parents will understandably ask, well, wait, what if it was just a threat? Well, we want to extinguish that too. And what better way of doing that than a six-hour wait in the ER to plead your case to the nurse? Oh, I was only trying to get my iPad back. I'm actually not suicidal. That's a really nice response cost to sit there and have to wait, not on a device. Do not give your kid a device when you're at the emergency room and have them wait and talk to the nurse or physician when it comes time. And if it was a threat, perhaps they can convince that admitting medical professional that they do not need to be on a hold, but that's the professional's job. That's not your job as a parent to try to divine, well, did he mean it? He was just threatening. Okay, he's just threatening. You can have it. No, no. You've just inadvertently reinforced your kid to threaten idly their self-harm for next time. So top level of the triangle defense, X-Men, get help. Get somebody else to jump in and set limits with you. Other examples include your partner, the college kid down the street who is strong and can help get Junior in the car to go to the emergency room. You know, it's summer right now. 
college students are off and they're looking for summer jobs. Hey, can you come over for a couple hours each day while Johnny finishes his summer school homework or this summer reading and just make sure he's not on a device right now? Even that is an example of, man, I've exhausted all my other options. I'm at the top of the pyramid or the triangle defense. What do I do now? Do I just fork over the screen? No, you can get help in the form of a third party. Wow. I couldn't agree more. Thanks. I couldn't agree more. I think it makes perfect sense. It's natural consequences. It's not just about screen time. This is the hierarchy of reaction to behaviors that you don't want in your family, right? Mm -hmm. It's really true. Yeah. Well, and there it is again that I didn't make this stuff up. I, you know, I organized it in a way that it sounds like is pretty consumable for parents and I hope pragmatic and quick. But You know, I didn't make up the idea that if somebody is suicidal, you get them support so as to save their life or to limit their idly threatening themselves if they're not truly suicidal. And so, sure, can you apply it to screen time? Absolutely. Could you also apply it again if it were pertaining to different content? Certainly. That was so fantastic. Uh, Let's all just (laughs) consume that for a second. I want to still ask you, what's the best way for people to connect with you? Sure. What is your website? Sure. Our office website is synergypsych.com, S-Y-N-E-R-G-Y-P-S-Y-C-H.com. And so we're happy to connect with folks who might need support in these areas. And then the book website is Don't Get Played. Dot com And it's also available on Amazon. But if you go to don'tgetplayed.com and follow the coupon code links, you can enter the code Learn Smarter in honor of your podcast. Um, and you'll save 20% off the cover price. And it's available in ebook as well, ironically. And so <laughs> when your kid says, what are you doing on the screen again? I'm reading a book about how to get us all off our screens. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So smarties, be sure to go out and get Dr. Dilly's book, Joe's book. We're going to link it in the show notes. And we can't thank you enough for taking the time yes, to do this with thank us. You. Thank you, guys. This it, is great. It was wonderful. I really appreciate what you're doing. I hope it helps a lot of people. I really do. I think it will. You guys already are. Thank you for your podcast. Wow, Steph. I am loving having authors and experts come on the podcast in this way. I am too. It reminds us of a lot that we already know, but he had so much language that was really, I mean, these were conversations like when he was talking about bribery versus response cost. That was such an interesting conversation. It was. And I think that we're really just taking it in and just being cognizant of some of the things that we might forget that we do naturally, even with our kids. It's a great way to really have a framework of this is how we should handle I loved how intentional he was in his approach as well, which is something that we really advocate making choices about behaviors that we want to change in educational therapy. It's a parallel to making structural changes into the home and when it comes to screen time. Yeah. And setting expectations, I think, is a big one, right? We all need to set expectations for ourselves for our clients, for the kids in our lives. And I think the more that we can all be on the same page and set those expectations clearly for them, the more likely they are to want to achieve them. I also love the fact that we had that conversation about iPads at restaurants. Yeah, 
That was a good question. Yeah. I love that his initial reaction was like, oh, good, then I can do it too. <laughs> this is what we were talking about when we said in the beginning of our interview how fair this book is. So we definitely hope that you all are going to enjoy it. We also like the triangle defense a lot. Mm-hmm. You heard a long pause after he finished explaining it, right? <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, some things we have to let go of. We really do. And that's okay. I think that's one of the things that is the benefit of having an educational therapist when it comes to school and learning. Because there are times, and you guys have heard us say this on the podcast, that certain things are not a right now problem. And they Mm -hmm. may never be a right now problem. There would be nice. Yeah, there would be nice problems. So Steph and I like to think about a lot of things in our lives as... Is this a right now thing that I have to do or expectation that I have to set or response that I have to give? Or is this a, wouldn't it be nice if now was the moment? Yeah. Which kind of gives you a little bit of leeway. You know, you put it on a list and deal with it later. Right. Well, I mean, rolling of the eyes, right? Some people might react and think that they feel like that's a big trigger if you roll your eyes. If a kid rolls their eyes at you, then yeah, I understand if it's a trigger, but if we're trying to take a step back and look at the bigger picture in that moment, that might be a, let's let it go for now. I think the rolling of the eyes thing from what my travels have showed me is different in different parts of the country. Yes. I'm just using it as an example because the children that I, I raised right, did a lot of rolling of the eyes. Yeah. As you were explaining it, I'm like, mm, I know certain people in different parts of the country that they could not let that go. Yeah. Yeah. Just that particular example. All right, Smarties, we want to remind you, if you want the code to get 20% off this book, Dr. Joe Dilley was kind enough to set that up for us. So his website, again, is don'tgetplayed.com. Follow the icon for redeem your coupon code. And then it's learn smarter, all caps. And we'll also include his practice website in our show notes as well. So We can't wait to continue this conversation with you in the Smarties of the Learn Smarter Podcast Facebook group, and we'll see you there. See you next week, Smarties. Have a great week.